It's the 19th hole with Michael Williams. Hey everyone, and welcome to this very special edition of the 19th hole, a season wrap-up with PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan. This has been a year like no other in America. Uh, first, a global pandemic brings a halt to virtually every aspect of daily life, including professional sports. And then the slaying of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, among others, unleashed a seismic wave of protest that was felt and echoed around the world. The PGA Tour was affected as much as any of the sports leagues. Uh, Commissioner uh, Monaghan and his team faced the challenge of how to safely open a league that travels to a different city every week in an environment when many people don't feel safe leaving their house. Once open, the sport had to compose an effective response to calls for diversity and inclusion, despite a lingering reputation as a league for being among the most exclusive of the major professional sports. I talked with Commissioner Monaghan in an exclusive interview about the turmoil and triumphs in 2020, along with dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and how the PGA Tour will make its mark in America's reckoning on racial justice on and off the course. Commissioner, thanks so much for joining. It's great to be talking to you, and congratulations on an unbelievable 2020 season. Same to you. We uh, it was great. We we it was nice to wrap up our our season at East Lake, and uh, was kind of proud to get to that moment. And great to see some inspired golf. No more, no one more inspired than Dustin. <laughs> uh, as as I always say, when that guy really feels like he wants to do that, there's almost nobody who can stay with him. It, it, it's just incredible to watch him play. I've seen it in person. It's just incredible. Oh, uh, it really is. Yeah, he's, he's, he's something. Um, but again, kudos to you guys for pulling off um, that the whole season, the whole series of, uh, of great events. Uh, it was just, uh, I think it's an example you know, to the other sports leagues and you know, to other organizations about how something can be done in this era. So again, um, kudos to you. Well, thank you, thank you, and and you know, in instances like this, it's it's just one big, massive team effort. So uh, a lot of people sharing that that outcome. So it's pre- it's pretty cool. But we start our season on Thursday, so <laughs> we just got to keep it going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Talk about uh, changing the tires while the car's car's still moving. That's a pretty good example yeah. of it, right there. I get that. So thanks again for uh, for joining us here. I've been looking forward to this interview for some time, and uh, I just want to start Me off too. with a helicopter view of um, of the job of PJ Tour Commissioner. Uh, by my count, there's only four guys who have held uh, the job in history, and um, mm-hmm. I just want to get from you: How has the job changed? What's the biggest difference between uh, Dean Beeman's job and the job you have to do every day? Well, I think I think when when Dean took over. As commissioner of the PGA Tour, uh, in its simplest form, the tournaments themselves were not run by or controlled by the tour itself. 
and the media rights for the events were controlled by the tournaments in the local markets. And so, in essence, Dean realized that for the tour to thrive, uh, the tournaments needed to be uh, all come underneath the PGA Tour and be operated at the direction of the tour. And in order to maximize playing and financial opportunities, those media rights need to be pooled. And the stroke of genius back then was that as a means of, of, of accomplishing that, uh, all of our tournaments uh, were organized for the benefit of charity. And so you fast forward today and, you know, we generated over, we've generated over $3 billion since inception, and that's such a critical part of what we do every day. Today it's, you know, I look to the fact that the game, it's truly a global game. We've got 94 players from 29 countries that are participating on our tour of roughly 250 members. We play seven events outside the U.S. You know, you look at our domestic media partnerships with Viacom, CBS, uh, and NBC internationally with Discovery. Just the presence and the profile of the tour is, you know, it's truly global. It's a global game. So managing managing the the global business itself and the complexities that come with that, I think, is probably uh, what's different today versus back then. But it's also just been a natural part of the evolution of the tour and the game, Michael. Mm -hmm. And I will say that uh, that international part especially hits home for me. Uh, Seb Straka, who's uh, an Austrian on the tour, yeah. uh, is actually a uh, a school a schoolmate of my son. <laughs> they my son grew up in Austria, and he, they were best friends in elementary and middle school. Wow! So, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, <laughs> good file that under small world. But uh, well, he's just coming off of a an exceptional year. He he, he really is. He's, he's coming into his own. He's one of the stable of just great young players. It seems to be like a bottomless uh, a, a bottomless uh, container of these great young players who are, are soon to break through. Um, uh, let's talk about uh, the 2020 season. Even though we still have two major championships to go, oddly enough, we were talking about the close of the 2020 season. Um, it's not that it's in the books. I'll ask you this. Are you more surprised that you were able to start this season or that you were able to finish it, given everything that was going on with COVID-19? Yeah, I um, I would say that I was probably more surprised that we were able to start and start when we did, just because of all the uncertainty that we inherited when we stepped away during the week of the Players' Championship. So there's a period there of 30 to 45 days where you know, you're trying to, to reimagine and restructure your schedule. You know, given that we were stepping away after 24 weeks, we were also trying to do that in the context of, you know, what does this mean for the members of the PGA Tour in terms of their eligibility? Uh, you know, and is this going to be an official season? And then you had all the safety, health and safety protocols. So. Solving for those three important, you know, issues or challenges uh, was a significant undertaking, and, and so, you know, I think I think we just had a, a number of, you know, moments along the way that gave us an indication that we would be able to return in June, and a long, long way of, of saying to you that once we once we were back, we all recognized that we were going to experience 
some challenges and some setbacks. It's just the nature of the virus itself. Uh, but we felt like we had a great plan and that there was strong accountability with those that were going to be out, you know, in our bubble, albeit a bubble that was moving from market to market. And I always felt like we'd get here, but, you know, getting back and starting that week of June 8th, I think was, that was, that was the most challenging part of the exercise. And are there any policies or procedures that you'll carry forward into future future seasons that, that you learn from operating in, in this environment? And I'll give you, for, for, for instance, um, mm -hmm. some people like the look of the, uh, the tour and tournaments being played without grandstands uh, around the greens or thousands and thousands and thousands uh, of, of fans lining uh, the, the fairways and, and surrounding the greens. And... Of course, some didn't. You love to have the fans there, but was, was there any d discussion, maybe about maybe limiting the number of, of, of fans at events to improve the fan experience uh, on the course and for the viewers, viewers at home? And again, that's a for instance. It's it's an open question. Yeah, well, it's you know your your example is something I've heard a lot from a lot of people about, which is you know you look at um, other sports where you've got empty stadiums. And they're doing everything they can to create, you know, energy and to, you know, to bring people virtually or through cardboard cutouts to the venue itself. And while we have not been able to have spectators at our events, I think the natural beauty of several hundred acres, you know, moving from market to market. Yeah. Um, when I think, you know, part of the beauty of what happens week in and week out when you've got you know the mo the number of fans that we have is it just creates this incredible energy that's I think a big source of of what we experience when we're viewing the events. But then when you take it away, you you gain an even greater appreciation for the beauty of the game itself and the beauty of the landscape of these courses. But I think we'll listen for us for us to be able to make the charitable impact and the community impact that we need to have that we've had and we want to return to, you know, we're, we're going to need to get back to the way things were. And obviously we can't wait for our fans to come back and our players cannot wait to be playing in front of fans. Um, but I, I think, you know, Michael, we're still going through this. And to the, to the heart of your question, there is no doubt um, that there are a lot of learnings that we will apply to the business, you know, as we go forward. Um, you know, there, there's a, when you operate a certain way for a long period of time and you can no longer operate that way, you identify inefficiencies. You identify things that maybe you hadn't been doing that you should be doing. Um, you you know, you think about what the, you know, the player experience is. Um, and I mean, for example, we were, you know, as, as you know, you, you, you follow the game, you love the game, you play the game big part of what happens at PGA Tour events is, is we've got amateurs that are playing with professionals on Wednesday. Right. You know, inside the same field of play. And that experience is a huge part of uh, our economic model. We couldn't, we couldn't have pro-amps and haven't been able to. Uh, week two, at the end of week two, going to week three, I get a call on Monday. Uh, Bubba Watson is in his RV heading from Hilton Head to Hartford. Uh, and we had him mic'd up on Sunday with Wesley Bryan, and they had some really good back and forth during that round, you know. And and some of that commentary, we're picking up a lot of commentary 
in the broadcast, and we've gotten good feedback on that. So mm-hmm. that's something we'll try and capture more of. But mm-hmm. Bubba said, listen, we're not playing pro-ams. It's harder for us to you know, support these tournament organizations. What if we do a charity event on Wednesday where we mic guys up? I'll, I'll start it off. I'll pick three guys. We'll have a match. And in Detroit, um, we started it, and it was to raise funds alongside Rocket Mortgage to address the digital divide in the city of Detroit. Mm-hmm. Raised well over a million dollars. And from that, each week we've held an event. And our players have been raising their hands. Just this past week, we raised a million dollars uh, on uh, on Thursday for the East Lake Foundation. So, like, it's just the little adjustments like that, I think, are, are things that you'll see us continue to find a way to apply as we go forward. And I'm sorry for that long answer. No, not not, not at all. And I was just thinking that with uh, the way this schedule is set up, you have approximately 48 hours to evaluate and implement these changes. So <laughs> good luck yeah. with that. <laughs> it, uh, it, it goes fast. Um, let's, let's turn to the other large issue uh, of the summer, which is obviously the, uh, the racial upheaval and reckoning that's been happening in the, in the country and all over the world. Um, it was interesting to me uh, to find out that you actually convened an inclusion leadership council within the PGA Tour long before um, this happened this summer, the social reckoning here. And um, what, I just want to know what prompted you to do that? Did you have a premonition even that there, that the, the severe inequalities that you see in society could lead to the type of upheaval that, that we're seeing? You know, I, I think I think um, you go back to I, I was I was named deputy commissioner of the tour in 2014, mm-hmm. and you know I think we've we have talked about um, you know one one of the one of the you know one thing everyone talks about when they when they talk about the game of golf is that the game of golf is fairly it's homogenous, and we need to. Uh, diversify our sport. We need to create more opportunities within our sport, and uh, and as an organization, we also recognize that uh, we wanted to reflect society. When you look across our organization, and so the question was, how do we go about understanding where we are organizationally, and how do we go about understanding how we can have a bigger impact on our game using our platform? So uh, that that led to the formation of our Inclusion Leadership Council, where we've got eight executives uh, on the council and that my office meets with frequently. And, you know, we've looked at everything from our hiring practices to uh, our employee demographics to, um, you know, to, you know to, to our messaging and some of the things that we're doing to, you know, to, to make sure that when we're talking about the game, we're celebrating the welcome inclu- welcoming and inclusive nature of the game and and so that was a that was the start of that was the start of our journey and it really was michael it was more in, it was it was more an inward look and to really understand where we were okay. and then how we could improve and how we could set benchmarks on that and how we could how we could raise conversations and talk more openly and real about where we were and you know our team Led by Allison Keller, you know. Now today, we on top of that, we have six employee resource groups, and I think the most important thing here is is we're 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 a culture where um, you know we're we're celebrating diversity of opinion, diversity of thought, and 
you know, I, we uh, prior to 2014, and and I give my predecessor all the credit for this with the formation of the first T. We we have been actively trying to make our mark through the first T with the establishment of 150 chapters now being in 11,000 elementary schools uh, and using our platform week in and week out to talk about. Um, you know, the life skills that the game of golf can teach you and trying to get clubs in kids' hands. And really, over the last, you know, as we have, as we have, uh, as we have really, again, looked inward at what has happened in society and how that affects us, we have, as I talked about last week, we are significantly doubling down on, on, on using our tournaments uh, in all the markets where we play uh, to identify causes that we think will make an impact on racial and social injustice, and then how do we use this incredible program of the first T and make certain that we're getting into more uh, Title I schools, Title I communities, and, and getting further into underprivileged and underserved communities. And you know, we've got a, we've got we're doing good work. We've got a lot more work to do, um, but I'm really excited about some of the things that we've identified that we think could have a huge impact on our game. Okay, and I just want to specify that you, you, as I said, you formed this uh, Inclusion Leadership Council. I said long before, but I didn't put a date on it. I believe that's, so yeah. was it 2017 or, or 2018? Yeah, 2014. Early? 2014 is when it 2014. was actually started. 2014, yeah. So, yeah. again, got a, a really a, a running start uh, into this. So one of the outcomes you announced last week is uh, the $100 million uh, pledge to uh, address racial inequality, if I phrase that right. Um, talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that, how you uh, decided on on making that a part of your, your response um, to the issues of the day. And also talk a little bit about how those uh, funds will be dispersed. How do you determine who's gonna, who are gonna be the re- recipients and how you determine effectiveness, that sort of thing? So when we returned the week of uh, June 8 to 11, um, you know, the week prior was the week uh, of George George Floyd's passing, George Floyd's killing, and um, for us, I I pledged that we were you know, pledged to be part of the solution, pledged to really listen and 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 understand and engage and try and find a way for us to make an impact. Because at the time, um, you know, there was, there was, you really felt like you wanted to do something and do it right away. And I felt like it was important to recognize the fact that we've been doing great work in every community where we play for a long period of time. And we needed to go back to our strength, and that is to talk to our tournaments. And keep in mind, we just announced a 50-event schedule for the 2020-2021 season. Wow. And as I, as I mentioned up front, the beauty of our model is that our tournaments are run by what we call host organizations in each community. And uh, those host organizations have business leaders, civic leaders, and generally anywhere from 800 to 3,000 volunteers. And so they are the pulse of that community. And they've raised millions of dollars through the years. And we felt like if we could organize, get our tournaments together and all pledged to identify a cause that's specific to their market that they identify that they believe can make an impact, and then they make a commitment to go not only raise funds, 
but engage with and celebrate that organization as we go forward. That is us doing what we've done, applying what we do exceedingly well towards the issue of racial and social injustice. And all of our tournaments very quickly raised their hands and said, we're on board and we're going to get to work. And so that, that was, uh, that's an important part of, you know, of, of how we felt like we could make a difference in that, you know, every, every market has different organizations and is in a different state and is in a different, you know, and you're going to get a different perspective on what needs to be done. And we felt being local with the organizations was the right way to go about it as one of the things that we're, we're, we're doing. <laughs> and, um, so the uh, one thing I want to ask is about the players themselves. So the tournaments uh, will be handling the, I guess, the implementation of this 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 commitment, this one hundred million dollar commitment. And I've heard that it's minimum one hundred million dollars. Who doesn't necessarily need to yeah. stop there? Um, Correct. You, you you when we talk about the PGA Tour players themselves, you said it's around a hundred guys. And I always think of it as around a hundred different sort of little mini teams in a league. And does it does messaging on events like this, social issues uh, such as this, does it make your job more difficult that you have to sort of manage a hundred teams rather than uh, like an NFL or an NBA, which has more of a team structure and maybe a little bit more structured in how they how they message to the to the public? Well, we have our players are 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 independent contractors and. When you look at the PJ Tour, you're really looking at about, on average, 250 members. Mm-hmm. And you know, to answer your question, I would say that, um, you know, because our players are independent contractors, and and given the nature uh, of our sport, which is so philanthropic, philanthropically minded, is so civically minded. A lot of our players very early on in their careers, once they start to achieve success, and really success starts when you become a member of the PGA Tour, a large number of our players have either formed their own foundations or are aligned with an organization, and they're making that their life's work. Mm -hmm. You couple that with what we do each week, and, you know, we there's so many different causes that we support and our players know that one of the beauties of playing in that event is that they're going to be making, contributing to making an impact in that, in, in the community. And so I think, I think one of the, one of the opportunities that that we have is that we've got a great working relationship with our players and our players expect us and understand that we're going to identify the causes that are going to, help society, help the game, help this organization. And because it's tied back to our tournaments, uh, they, they, they provide incredible support, and they're the reason that we're able to, mm-hmm. to make that impact. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it's a hard thing for, you know, I, and I, I wish I could state it e- even more clearly, but, you know, a large, our, player, our players are spending a large amount of their time helping others. And they're doing it when they're at home. They're doing it at tournaments. And when they sign up, when we get that commit list at Friday, Friday night at five o'clock, the week prior to an event, every one of those players is contributing to a massive charitable and economic impact in every community where we play. But going back to your question, I think it's, I, I think 
you know, complex societal issues become complex for every business. And what we try, what we try and do is communicate and be, and, and make sure that we're engaging our players in dialogue and our players are comfortable talking to us and reaching out to us and, you know, sharing their thoughts on, on, on issues, sharing their thoughts on what they think can be done. And I'd like to think that there's a lot of confidence that from them that they know we're going to distill that into the right set of actions. And Tiger Woods, uh, arguably the most uh, influential player in history, which makes him certainly the most influential player of color in history. Have you discussed with him uh, directly and personally his role in uh, implementing the tour's diversity and, and inclusion mission? You know, I would say that, that um, listen, I talked to Tiger about all facets of our business, all facets of the game, and he's got, he's got a, you know, he has a, he has a worldly view that's very valuable to me, and it's just fun to engage him in dialogue on, on really any, any, you know, any subject. But, you know, I would say that, that, um, you know, the one thing, when you look at Tiger, you go back to 1996, 1997, and he and his dad and his family came together and said that providing education and educational opportunities and providing access to STEM learning, that was going to be his life's work. And since that point in time, you know, he has built the TGR Learning Lab out in Anaheim. He has two other physical facilities. I think 165,000 kids have gone through the programming something called north of 5,000 teachers have been trained on STEM through their curriculum, trained and certified. And just this past year, I think it was 114 Earlwood scholarships were given out, four-year scholarships for first-generation college students, 98% of whom are minorities. And Tiger, you look at the tournaments he hosts from the Genesis Open to the Hero World Challenge, the amount of time he has given to supporting that work uh, the amount of financial resources he has provided and his level of engagement in the lives of these kids and knowing where they are and how he can help is, Michael, it's absolutely remarkable. And, you know, there are times when I hear he gets criticized for not being more vocal on issues. And I think everybody handles, uh, is, you know, ha handles issues and, and, their ability to, and you know, how they want to talk about how they want to, how heavily they want to be engaged differently, because that's we're all different, and we're all have, we all have different comfort levels. The level of action he has put into helping others is the thing that I focus on, and uh, he continues to do it in ways that people don't see, that I just find to be absolutely remarkable. And I challenge anyone. Uh, I don't know of any athlete. I know athletes. You know, the, the, the likes of LeBron and others have done incredible work, um, but Tiger, is, Tiger, as far as I'm concerned, has done more than anybody else over an extended period of time that I've seen, and it's, uh, you know, it's it, 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 it's something that we're proud to support. Mm -hmm. right. Do you think it would make a difference? Has he ever talked to you about doing any sort of PSA or something like that, literally sort of speaking into a microphone about about the issues and his, his his feelings on them that I don't know if that's ever you know we we talk about a lot of a lot of things and as you can imagine with with all of our players it's part of the beauty of of being able to have a dialogue and discussion and and get 
candid feedback on any number of subjects is, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I'll use that information to shape how we're going to continue to evolve as a business. But mm-hmm. those conversations are conversations, obviously, that I keep between myself and the athletes. But mm-hmm. I've talked to them about it, every subject I, you can imagine, as I have with so many of our players. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sam, well, we look forward to being privy to some of those at some point in the future, um, seeing the result of them. I just got a couple of more for you. Um, is there, because I don't, with, with my family, my, my personal history being personal color and um, absolutely infatuated with the game of golf, one of the pe- things I tell people about the game is that it's one of the most uh, prejudice-free environments that I've ever run across. And, uh, but, you know, still there are moments that inform me and let me know uh about the homogenous, let's say, nature of the game that you talked about before. You know, we have our moments, we have incidents, that sort of thing, and they're the outliers and the exceptions, but they do exist. Is there a moment of, or an incidence of racism that you have seen personally in your career or in your personal life that uh, affects and informs your decisions and your personal positions on, on issues of uh, race and, and inclusion? Michael, I think we've all, I mean, I know myself, I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, and um, we're outside of Boston, and yeah. went to public public school system there, and, you know, as I've made my way through life, uh, I, like so many, unfortunately, have, have seen and experienced uh, racism, and uh, I know the difference between right and wrong, and that you know that that shapes the way I think and mm-hmm. the way I lead and the way I try and apply myself to uh, to the work I do. And I mean, we all we've experienced it. We experience it in our own personal lives. And I think in today's day and age, where um, you know we have with with phones and digital platforms and the ubiquitous nature of uh, of media, we're all you know, everyone has has seen what has happened here over the last several months. So it's not, I mean, we're all seeing it and we're all, you know, uh, you know, I, I just say for us as an organization, it comes down to what, what, what can you do in the role that we're in to make a positive impact on, you know, again, our communities and on the game itself. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I don't, I, I think your question is, have I, have I, have I seen or experienced racism in my life? I absolutely have. Yeah, yeah. I know that some so people have these these moments that say, well, the aha moment. There's a lot of people who really haven't seen anything. And I'm very familiar with the Boston area. I know how you can sort of cross one street and be in the dead wrong neighborhood. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not a beautiful thing. So, um, yeah, uh, I just wanted to see if there's anything in particular that struck you. Um, Rather than just, I think the things that have, I think the things in particular that have struck me are, you know, my my black colleagues, my black friends, and the stories that they've told me, Mm -hmm. and you know, and I think as as you engage and 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 people share with you the way that they've been affected because you care, you know, I think life is all about caring for others when people you love and people you work with and people that um 
you know, you think you fully know start to share with you ways that they've been affected that you didn't know before, that's what shakes you. I mean, I think those are the most powerful moments. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, it's taken tremendous courage from my, my colleagues and friends to tell me some of those stories. And I continue to be, to learn from, you know, others that are telling their stories, those that I don't know. And that that's part of that's part of how we work through this real, really challenging time is to try and really listen to what others are saying, others that are impacted in ways that, candidly, I have not been. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel, as a human being, I feel connected to and I feel, you know, inspired to try and help make a difference. Well said. Um, last question for you is, if you put yourself 10 years into the future, um, if the efforts that you're implementing and embarking on now are successful, what will it look like 10, 10 years from now? What will be what will be different and significantly changed? Well, you know, first of all, I'd say that, you know, as a game, you've got the PGA Tour, you have the LPGA Tour, you then you have the four major championship organizations, the PGA of America, 29,000 teaching professionals that they represent run the PGA Championship, Augusta National with the Masters, USGA with U.S. Men's and Women's Open, and uh, the uh, RNA with the uh, Men's and Women's Senior, uh, Men's and Women's Open Championship. Um, And obviously, going back to the PGA, they have the KPMG, Women's PGA. But Mm -hmm. I think as a sport, we're working... I mean, it's 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 a matter of us all working together to make an impact on our industry. But from from my standpoint, I would just seeing us be one being in a position where we can talk market to market about the impact that we've had um, uh, on racial and, and social injustice organizations and efforts, both financially and in terms of our our engagement and the impact we've had. I think for the first tee, it's it's a matter of continuing to, one, um, address some of the disparities or barriers, get into more underprivileged, underserved communities, and put young kids on a path where they can either continue to play the game uh, or ultimately continue to want to be in the game and pursue careers in the game. Um, but as much success as we've had, I think it's going to be, that's going to be an important part uh, of our evolution. I think out on the PGA tour, you know, we're, 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 we have supported the advocates professional golf association since 2013. We're now, we're now going to be working with the APGA to identify the top five um, black college golfers coming out of HBCUs uh, we're going to provide them with access and sponsorship to play on the APGA and then give them a path to get to the Corn, Corn Ferry Tour qualifying school. And then we're going to take the great resources we have at the PGA Tour Performance Center and give these players, you know, the best instruction that, you know, that we have available to us to try and contribute to, you know, seeing uh, more minorities, more black players continuing to evolve across our tours and ultimately to the PGA tour. And it sounds like a, you know, I continue to say having our sport reflect society, I think continuing to see, 
you know, they see more diversification in what you're seeing inside the ropes and outside the ropes at, at our tournaments and more people coming into our game is is what I hope to be talking about 10 years from now. And I'm not alone. That's what I think all of us across the organization recognizing that, you know, as we've all spent our time on the phone or on Zoom calls or Microsoft Teams calls and <laughs> we've been restricted with what we can do outside, there are more and more people playing golf people that haven't played the game before. And I think the PGA of America, you know, and the professionals at each of these courses have been forced to respond in ways that they couldn't have imagined. But ultimately, I know that, you know, the game itself is trying to be as welcoming and inclusive. And, you know, we want everybody playing this game. It's such a great game. And that's going to be a big part of how we're going to be looked upon 10 years from now is what did we do with this opportunity that we had well, hard, to, hard to call it an opportunity, but for yeah. our sport with such limited activities, it's you know there are a lot more people playing golf right now, and the numbers are bear that out. They do, and um, you know I, I I'd say an opportunity is probably the right thing right thing to call it. And uh, you know I, I I I just want to say thank you for this interview. And the one reason I really did want to do this is because again the way I feel about the game, um, I have such confidence in both the, uh, the know-how, the financial resources, the intellectual resources that are available in the game, um, especially at the PGA Tour, to be able to, to, to make a significant difference and to be a role model for other organizations that want to try to um, match their intent and their impact. And you guys have certainly done that in such a short period of time in the 2020 season. And I, I can't wait to see uh, what comes next, and uh, you can be sure that I'll be giving you a call to try to give you a, a, an opportunity to talk about it, because this is, you know, of course, as it is for everyone, especially for me, um, something of the highest interest. Uh, uh, I'm engaged. Well, Michael, I I really appreciate the opportunity to be here, you know, and to have this conversation with you. And um, I listen when you see things that you think we could be doing better when you. You know, you, you you call me, and, and I'd like to periodically check in and just talk about where we are. And, um, again, we're, 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 we're all about making progress, and I think we've got a really good plan ahead of us, and we're just going to go and make it happen. Hey, Tate, thanks so much again for taking the time. Thank you, Michael. And uh, I appreciate you. Yeah, be well. We'll talk to you soon. Likewise, you sir. Okay. All right. Bye yeah. now. Bye. So many takeaways from that interview with uh, Commissioner Monahan, but I think the biggest takeaway for me is I come away even more impressed with him and the team and all the people who have made the PGA Tour work this year in, in an era and in, in, in an environment, as I said before, in the open where it's difficult to keep anything going. It's difficult uh, to go to school. It's difficult to go to the store. It's difficult to see your family. And this team has managed to put together this sort of amalgamation of rapidly moving parts and assemble them into something that allowed the players to do what they do best and allow us to enjoy that and have that semblance, that little piece of normality, if you want to call it that, to to hang on to. And and look, you had we've had major championships, we've had uh, the events. Sure, we've had some canceled. Uh, mostly everyone has stayed healthy. And I think it's just a testament to the skill and the commitment of, of that team. And I, that that's never ceases 
to amaze me that uh, people are able to uh, accomplish that. It never ceases to amaze me what people are able to accomplish. And again, as he said, the, the bus is still rolling. So 2021 is already underway, basically. And I can't wait to see what uh, the PGA Tour, Commissioner Monaghan, his team and the golfers that play there are going to produce for us. It's going to be something to see. Uh, thank you for joining me for this very special edition of the 19th hole. You can listen to this one and every edition of the 19th hole here at Golf WRX. You can also find it on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple iTunes, and a host of other destinations where fine podcasting can be found. Until the next time, please go out, hit some balls, hit them straight, and remember, don't count the days, make the days count. Michael Williams, 19th hole, Golf WRX.